In the battle for our souls between the devil and God, there are no innocent civilian bystanders. I'm sitting here with Joe Heschmeyer, my co-host today. Absolutely. <laughs> we are joined by Father Joshua Worth out of the Salina Diocese here in Kansas, and we're going to be chatting about the reality of the demonic, the reality of possession, the reality of the demon, and what that points to in terms of our Catholic faith as well. Father Joshua, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I understand you have something of a personal connection in more ways than one with this topic. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes, well... Uh... I've been assistant to the exorcist um, for the exorcist uh, of Salina Diocese for five or six years now, but my original involvement into kind of researching this stuff um, started with my own uh, family. My parents divorced when I was 16, and um, it was kind of a Jerry Springer situation where my uh, mom met somebody on on the internet back when it was dial-up, and you you couldn't be on the phone at the same time you're on the internet. But uh, I remember those the, days. Uh, I don't think Chloe does. She met, <laughs> but I know. They, I don't know if Chloe remembers that. Uh, that time she met somebody on the internet, uh, went out to California from Kansas um, to be with be with him, but also left the Catholic faith at that time as well and got into uh, Wicca, which is modern-day witchcraft. And so I remember researching that, kind of figuring out, trying to figure out what the heck is going on. You know, I thought this was just something of... Harry Potter wasn't out back then, but I just thought it was something of uh, sci-fi or, or fantasy type of stuff. And I just remember coming across some uh, different resources. One of them was a, a Wicca thing about um, a reimagining of, of, the, of the original sin where Eve was this feminine hero for, mm. for uh, discovering the truth and, and kind of being independent from God or her husband or anything like that. And, and I just realized, wow, the devil is working, and he's and he's actually pretty brilliant and seducing a lot of people into into different um, ways of, of looking at the world that are that are wrong. So that kind of started my interest in it and um, trying to find answers to it. How old were you when this was happening? I mean, it was sixteen when she left, but mostly in college where I was doing a lot of research. And then uh, my last year of before my last year of college. Um, I went out to California to see her first time in, in many years and, and tell her that I was, um, I was, you know, I forgave her for what she did and I didn't want to be living in the past anymore. And, and she took me to church, which was nice. And we went to some of the, um, missions there around San Diego area, mm-hmm. which was, uh, great. I love looking at those old churches. And but at one point she uh, said, we're going to, at the end of the, towards said we're going to go look at a vortex of power they called it mm. and i was just like i was just like whatever but so i went along with the ride well i get car sick and there's a lot of winding roads and stuff like that so by the time we got to this vortex of power which were just it was just kind of a park area that i um i found his bench we walked a little bit ways and then i found his bench kind of a, one of those plastic wire mesh benches and i laid down on there and then when i woke up i'd seen that her and her husband had cast a circle around me, what they call casting a circle. Can you explain what that is? Basically, they just call out, invoke the spirits of the four directions and the winds and things of that nature. It's a nature-based religion, uh, Wicca and witchcraft. The devil can um, sometimes confuse people, but he doesn't show himself up as the devil. He says, I'm your higher spirit, I'm uh, another pagan goddess or god or something like that. 
or I, you know, I'm some kind of other deity. And so invoke, invoke this four winds or whatever it may be. And you think you're invoking the power of mother nature, but really you're just invoking the power of anything that isn't God, which would be a demon. It turns out that bench was where they did their rituals and stuff. It was kind of their altar. And I had, uh, fell asleep on it and got, and got, um, kind of cast in a circle. So because of that, there was a exorcist in Omaha that I went to, um, Institute of Priestly Formation there after my first summer seminary. There was a, there was nothing real, real outlandish going on in my life. I mean, there wasn't anything moving around or flying around, but just resistance to seminary and resistance to the sacraments and resistance to prayer that I just couldn't shake. I couldn't get rid of and Everybody thought I was probably, probably going to leave seminary. But I uh, encountered a exorcist at uh, IPF at Omaha. He's in the newspaper a lot, so he doesn't mind his name being shared, Monsignor Essif. And they had a private prayer meeting with him and, and my spiritual director at the time on the retreat. And I walked in there, and they had the book of, said, uh, you know, ritual of exorcism on it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is actually <laughs> going to happen. So I found out later it was a uh, minor exorcism, mm. so not the solemn exorcism that you would kind of see in the movies or you hear about that is done with, with a full possession. Right. There's different layers, different uh, levels of kind of a demonic attack. There's, there's kind of harassment, which could be anything from things moving around or, you know, birds flying into windows or something. Or there could be something like a oppression where the person has scratches or intrusive thoughts mm. or, or something of that nature. And then, what we know as as full full grade possession, uh, where the person has given up all the rights to to their life, and the demon is kind of able to shove them like in a closet of their soul, kind of shove them to the side, and and take over the body as its own. And so uh, those um, prayers of minor exorcism were said over me, and they were very fruitful. And I have a vocation talk where I talk about that more in depth, but they're very fruitful and kind of strengthened me in my pursuit of seminary and stuff. And, but also it's been so helpful with my extras in ministry. Cause I can tell people I've gone through some of this. And so these are some of the things you'll be feeling as you're going through it and uh, not to be scared of that or, but that's actually a healing thing that's happening. So when we mentioned the demonic, like in today's culture, a lot of people, when they hear that automatically think of like, Oh, like horror movies, like, ah, oh, that's where you're like, your head spins around and, and you're possessed by the demon, but, or they think that you're medieval or you're out of touch, but like, why is it important mm-hmm. in today's society, especially to realize that the devil is present and should Christians be afraid of the devil or like, what should our, what, what should our emotion or interaction with that be? Uh, there's a, there's a quote I like from, uh, Kanye West. He says, you know, the devil is alive cause I can feel him breathing. It's like, mm. we can see the fingerprints of, of the devil. And especially, you know, I work at the prison as well. Uh, same massive prison. And those prisoners have seen, have seen some things. They know the devil's alive and, mm-hmm. and they want to encounter the living God that's more powerful than them. I always kind of put it in a couple of categories. I think the devil doesn't want to show himself to most people, you know, if he showed himself to me or you or, or anybody else uh, that had some kind of knowledge of the faith, it would just quickly send us right to prayer, right to the sacraments, right to, uh, you know, confession. Mm-hmm. We would just run as quick as we can to, to all that stuff. So he doesn't want that to happen. So he'll entice us in other ways, such as just being lazy or, or lustful or prideful or greedy with money. And he'll just kind of 
place these ideas or opportunities in our way where that test us in those ordinary temptations. But to really holy people like Padre Pio, you know, he was frustrated. Padre Pio knew he existed, couldn't, didn't have to worry about scaring him to more prayer because he's already praying a lot. Mm-hmm. So he tried to attack him at night to keep him from hearing confessions the next day because he knew that a big murderer or somebody was coming in to go to confession. And if he could keep him up all night because he was frustrated and wanted to attack Padre Pio by throwing stuff at him or scratching at him or whatever it may be, Mm-hmm. then maybe he'll cancel confessions tomorrow and then that person will give up going to confession, which he wouldn't, he wouldn't cancel confessions. He would get no sleep and he'd still hear confessions all day. Or the person that's really far away from God, I'm talking like they're in the brothel, they're in the drug den, they're, mm-hmm. that if the devil just showed up in all his, his horrific terror and goriness, that they wouldn't even know how to pray. They wouldn't know where to go. They wouldn't know how to pray. They wouldn't even be able to say a Hail Mary and Our Father or anything like that. For most part, people aren't going to see these dangerous apparitions or anything. Most likely, you're going to be tricked in other ways. Going to the exorcism conference, I've heard some stories. One of the things that the presenters always say is about a third of their clients or patients come from either amateur or professional ghost hunters. Oh, wow. So we've That's seen this fascinating. On, we've seen this on TV, right? So the people go in there, and I've seen local groups, too, that try to imitate that stuff on TV. Right. But people go in there and they say two, you know, usually two things. They have a video camera a recorder and they say, show me something or, or tell us something, mm-hmm. you know, if there's any, any spirits here. Well, we know that we have protections because of baptism. Right. You know, it, it all started with the fall. The devil enticed Adam and Eve. And it's like he's a drug dealer and he got them hooked. So everybody who's born Adam and Eve, which is all of us. Right. Is, is born not addicted to drugs, but addicted to sin. And since the father, of that, the dealer of that sin was the devil, it's like he owns everybody that came from Adam and Eve. He has what we want. We're addicted to sin. He's, he's the father of sin. Mm-hmm. So um, God doesn't want us to be that way. He, he gives us the antidote, baptism. He pulls us out of the, the territory of the devil, and now we're totally protected, and, and we belong in the territory in the kingdom of God. So, but we can wear down that protection. We go into those those ghost hunter, those what we think is a haunted house, and we say, um, "If there's anybody here, let me see you. Let me hear you." Well, our eyes don't actually, you know, go out and capture an image. Our ears don't actually hear a sound. What it does is receive light and and receive sound waves. Mm-hmm. So, what you're really saying that the demons are very legalistic. And they will take any any little legal kind of, even though you didn't imply it that way, they'll take any little thing they can. Mm-hmm. So what you're really saying by saying, show me something, let me hear something, what you're really saying to the demon is, Come into my I'm body. allowing you, yeah. I'm getting permission to, to put light in my eyes or a shadow in my eyes, absence of light. Yeah, you mentioned Padre Pio a second ago. He had a great quote about this. He said, the devil has only one door by which to enter into our soul, the will. There right. are no secret doors. Yep. No sin is a sin if not committed with the will. When there is no action of the will, there is no sin, but only human weakness. So it just seems really right. striking. That, I mean, what you're saying is people are opening mm-hmm. these doors. They're going into these yeah. places and thinking it's a game. And they're opening a right. door that wouldn't otherwise be open. But they're making an action where they're letting exactly. the devil in. It's a, it's a violation of the first commandment where we're only supposed to trust in, in God. And his promises about the afterlife, and his promises about purgatory, and his promises about heaven or hell. We're supposed to only trust in that, 
and yet we're going and doing things that he's told us not to do, such as contacting the dead. And, and those demons, so they use that permission, and did we put any time limit on that permission? Did we say only in this place permission? Right. So then the people leave there, and they keep on seeing shadows. They keep on hearing voices because they, that permission still exists, and they have to find a way to break that uh, right and usually do that by going to confession. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, people, a lot of people don't know about confession or not Catholic, so then they go to a psychic or a witch or a Satanist or you know, some kind of voodoo doctor or a medium and say, can you break this? Mm-hmm. But what ends up happening, um, they think they're breaking it, they think it's being healed, but then they've just given away another right to something even greater. They just and that's the where you usually, usually get to a possession is that somebody has gone through so many psychics and so many mediums trying to get rid of that first thing that they they did, maybe a Ouija board, maybe tarot cards, maybe uh, you know some kind of Wiccan or satanic ritual that they didn't understand, Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. And they went through so many psychics and mediums trying to get rid of it. Now they've given away their whole right to their whole body, and that's when a demon can just say, you go in the closet over here in the corner of your soul, I have rights to everything now. So can you talk about the relationship between confession and major and minor exorcisms and all that? I mean, you, I think you've done a really good job of painting the picture of the, the symptoms. Can mm-hmm. you talk about the cure? The most, of course, most powerful one is anything that would break that, um, that right that the demon has to, to harass um, or oppress a person or possess a person. So going to confession... And saying, you know, Father, I broke the first commandment in doing this action, Ouija board, or ghost hunting, or mm-hmm. talking to a medium, or talking to a psych, you know, breaking that, um, breaking that right that the demon has, that permission he has to interact with you, and and giving that over to the Lord, go, going to uh, communion then after that, because so you, you want to expel the evil spirit, but you don't want to leave that empty, so you want the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Holy Father to all inhabit you all right mm-hmm. and then that active prayer life so most people when they come to me with um, problems you know first thing i ask is is how's their prayer life now, are they going to church when's the last time they went to confession mm-hmm. um you know if they report very little of any of that i say pray to rosary every day go to mass once a week on on the weekend you know on sunday and then go to confession once a month do that for three months and and then get back to me and tell me what's going on because demons are allergic to grace it's like it's just it's like fire to them so they have permission to hold on to you and but if you're always going to mass if you're always praying if you're always going to confession then they they're like what's more painful me uh you know the the punishment i'm going to face if i fail at attempting this this person which they face punishment um, by the devil and in hell mm-hmm. or the punishment I'm facing going to mass and praying and hearing all this stuff, all this holy stuff, which is just fire to me, you know? So, um, if we can get it, if we can get into a good habit and we have to keep that habit because the demons, um, are always around, always watching. They know what we say to each other. They don't know our thoughts. Only God knows our thoughts, but they know what we say to each other when ourselves, when nobody's around. So, they know if we're saying to each other, oh, I can't believe I forgot this. I'm such a bad person. So they know when we're beating ourselves up. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes they can say to themselves, this is only going to last for a couple months. You know, during the, And then summer break is going to come, you know, especially for college kids. Yeah. 
then summer break's going to come. They're not going to go to mass anymore. They're not going to pray anymore. They're not, and I can just, I just have to hold on till summer break because last year they did this too, and I just got to hold on to summer break. So that's why we always got to be in that state of grace. And there's just no, there's no, there's no breaks from the spiritual warfare. There's no innocent civilians in the in the spiritual warfare. So when is an exorcism appropriate, and how do you know whether to do a minor or a major exorcism? What does that process look like, and can you maybe share yeah. your own stories of it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, a lot of people call me, you know, they're just having trouble with sin, um, you know, just habitual sin, and they're hoping that I have the, the magic prayer that will kind of get rid of that attachment mm-hmm. to sin, but I don't. It's usually um, it's a, a right that was given away that um, through an occult practice, so that's the first thing I ask somebody is, was there some occult thing that happened? So either they, they did a occult thing, they were in relationship somehow with a occult person, or they maybe received a gift from somebody, a cursed item from somebody in the occult. Um, one example I have of that is this um, unbaptized person came to me, but really faithful Christian, non-Catholic, um, and first referenced to me by by her friend, uh, a male friend, and they both came together, and she explained how, you know, all of a sudden she would look at a bathrobe on on the door, and it would just seem like a person. It would just flash in front of her mind this vivid image of a person hanging there, where she see the tassels on her on her curtains, and it would just flash into her mind that it was intestines that was hanging there, and just these. She would just look at things, and things would just flash, you know. And I asked her all the questions. I said, "Do you do anything with the occult? Did you?" No, no, no. She loves God. She's read scripture. Um, she hasn't been to any kind of church service in a while, but she hadn't done anything with the occult. And I had—I usually have a questionnaire that I ask people about all kinds of things, connections that they might not think about. One of the questions was, have you received anything from a gift from a witch or a Satanist? And she said, well, I moved into this house, and the neighbor said, she says she's a witch, and she gave us two couches. And I said, okay, that's that's probably the source of it. We don't know what she did with those couches. Those could have been her altar in her house. She could have done spells on that. And when that happens, the demon says, I have a right to live here. I have a right to live on this couch. Mm. And especially for an unbaptized person to, t- to then uh, sit on there, they say, okay, you belong to the devil because you've never been baptized in a way you belong to the devil. And so I have a right to, and you're sitting in my territory. So they use their kind of weird legalistic mumbo jumbo i don't want to insult you joe i know you're a lawyer but <laughs> but uh they use their weird legalistic mumbo jumbo to say i i have a right to be here you're sitting on my couch you're unprotected i have a right to harass or oppress you in some way and i thought that was it was kind of a weak weak case that might be the case but um that was the best thing i could come up with until the guy came back and he kind of got freaked out by all the descriptions that she was saying the guy came back in, and, and she said for the first time, she said, oh, we have to get rid of our couches. And I was like, wait a minute, you guys are, are living together? And are you in a romantic relationship together? And the guy was like, well, Father, you know. I was like, actually, I, I don't know. That's why I'm asking the question. But uh, she said, yeah, we are in a romantic relationship together. And I said, well, okay, you need to go to confession. You're the Catholic. You need to go to confession. You need to get rid of those couches. And you need to start going to whatever service 
Christian service you wanted to, and she said, well, I'm thinking about becoming a Catholic. I said, okay, there's RCIE classes. You can start doing that. And and I haven't heard from them since, so hopefully that um, all took place. But mm-hmm. the part I didn't want to tell them, because I don't want to scare them too much, but, you know, if there was if there was a sexual ritual cast on that spell, so that witch had some kind of sex magic or sex ritual on that um, spell, and then on that couch, and then gave that couch to somebody else, and then they commit a sin of fornication on that couch, then the demon has even a stronger legal argument. He says, this is my territory, you're un, un, unbaptized, and you committed a sin. It wasn't a sin against the first commandment, but you committed a sin, and in doing a sin in my territory, you have allowed me to, to interact with you in, in this powerful way. Scary stuff. Yeah, usually what happens sometimes with witches and Satanists, when they're really, really deep into it, they've given away all the rights of their body and their soul. And so they're higher, you know, whoever they are interacting with, they might think it's a higher being or a pagan deity, you know, but really is a demon. Mm-hmm. We'll say to them in some way or another, give them a feeling, okay, I've got everything I need from you. Now give me somebody else. Oh. And so I try to, I try to warn college people that, you know, you're going one night stands. There's been cases one night stand and they found out that that uh, later, not unbeknownst to them, but that was a Satanist or a witch that had cast us, used them in a sex ritual and that they become fully possessed at that point, even though they didn't know they were breaking the first commandment, but they were breaking this, the sixth commandment with, with um, somebody that was in the occult that had a demon attached to them. Wow. You know, you mentioned I used to be a lawyer. And actually, back in those days, there was I witnessed some of this kind of up close. I lived in oh, an yeah? apartment complex, and a guy moved into the basement mm-hmm. apartment, and he was involved in the occult. He had a little candle mm-hmm. in front of a sign that said hell. And mm-hmm. as soon as he moved in, crazy stuff started happening throughout the apartment. So, yeah. for example, in my room, or in my, like in my apartment, uh, the faucets would turn on on their own and just like turn on full blast. And I'd turn them off and come back, and they'd be full blast again. Uh, my downstairs mm. neighbor had a painting just like jump off the wall, mm. and mm-hmm. I mean, and it really corresponded to this guy moving in. So I was curious yeah. about that dimension in terms of like the devil being present in a place. You talked about objects, like you know the the couch or mm-hmm. demons being attached to right. to people and objects. Does that is that true? With you know you mentioned haunted houses before. What is yeah. what is that like in terms of the locales? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they they get permission to because of because the sin has been committed there, you know, involving a violation of first commandment. They get permission to interact with that stuff. That becomes part of not the redeemed world, but the kind of the fallen world. And they they have permission to interact with um, those things. Their hopes being that then you'll go get a voodoo doctor, then you'll go get another witch, then you'll try to go get a satanist to try to to clear it out. You know, some meeting to come talk to. This, you know, they'll masquerade as a spirit, as a as a ghost of somebody that maybe somebody knows or somebody loves. They'll masquerade as, as something like that, and some some medium will come in there and say, "Oh, you got to do this to the house. You got to put sage, or you got to." So basically, they they trick you into giving away more and more rights of that nature. So the way you get rid of that is the way the church has always got rid of it: blessings, holy water, holy objects. Holy water, the way that works is that's got a exorcism prayer many times in there, especially the uh, the uh, old rite holy water is very specific that it was protection. But any holy water 
it takes that prayer of the priest, which is really the blessing of, of Jesus, and wherever that holy water is, don't you wish you could just take, you know, one of your favorite priests and just put them in your pocket and then carry them around and have them bless whatever you want? Yes. Well, that's what you do with holy water. Yes, I do. <laughs> that's what. <laughs> that's what you do with. That's what you do with holy water. You just you're you're taking the blessing of that priest, which is really the blessing of Christ, and wherever you're spraying that water, then the priest Jesus is blessing that area. That mm-hmm. prayer is going to that area. So blessing that house, having holy objects, having prayer in there. Then the demon says, "This this is too painful for me. I don't want to be. I, there's easier targets to be, to go attack and go harass. And these people are not going to invite in a voodoo doctor. They're going to invite in, you know, a priest or a deacon to come and do a blessing. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want that. So I'm going to go somewhere else until, until the time is right, uh, for me to maybe come back here and harass the next tenants or something like that. You know, that right remains sometimes if it's not." If it's too, if it's really strong, such as there's a cursed object still in the house, then uh, then that right can remain. A lot of people want, always want me to like get rid of the threat. Well, the threat is just always going to be there. But mm. the, the grace that we have as Christians and especially Catholics is that we get to carry God's grace wherever we go. We can bless whatever place we move into, and so that threat is always going to be kind of outside the door, kind of scratch its way in. But most times it'll try to go after easier targets. Mm-hmm. So, Father, in the Gospel of Mark, we hear about Jesus giving the power to exercise demons uh, to the apostles mm-hmm. in Mark 3.15. So can you speak to what a priest can do, what a deacon can do, and what a layperson can do in terms of exorcisms and blessings? Yeah, so a priest um, and a deacon can do, can do blessings, such as I mentioned, uh, you know, blessings of houses and doors, entryways, blessing of salt, blessing of holy water, um, blessing of crucifixes and rosaries. I mean, all, all that brings that life-giving grace, which they're allergic to, and will send them away. Only priests can do exorcisms, and when I say exorcisms, I mean the ritual of the Church, the solemn exorcism. It has direct language in it where only the priest who has permission from the bishop to do this can say those rituals that say, I cast you out. I exercise you. Even for a priest to say that, that's not, has that permission from the bishop, he's entering a relationship with that demon. It's a confrontational relationship, but you're, by pushing that demon, you're giving him permission to push back. Again, that's kind of legalese thing. But when you have the full weight of the bishop permission and the full weight of the church, you know, many times you have to have jurisdiction to even a demon in, in the middle of a exorcism will say, Oh no, Father! We cross the street. We're in another diocese now. You don't. You don't have permission here. You don't have jurisdiction here. Right? Mm-hmm. It's very much jurisdiction and legally based. And then when a priest has all those things—permission from the bishop, jurisdiction, and proper training—and he's in the state of grace as well, then he can say those those maximum prayers of the church, which I cast you out. And he's and he's saying that through his priesthood, he's saying in the name of Jesus, I cast you out where other people, especially lay people, um, should just say, I ask St. Michael to cast you out, or I ask mm-hmm. Jesus to cast you out. I ask God the Father, I ask Blessed Mary to, to send you away. So that's that more indirect prayer where only the exorcist is allowed to do that direct casting out. In doing that, in creating that confrontational relationship, are exorcists subject to particular spiritual attack? Yes, 
But, again, the devil doesn't like to do much to the priest because he's just going to run to more prayers. So, but what he, the way he does attack exorcists is actually very sad. He overburdens them, makes them busy, kind of ordinary ways. He makes them busy. He'll send cases to them are going nowhere because the person doesn't actually want to be delivered. They were just there. The devil kind of enticed them somehow to go waste the priest's time, waste the exorcist's time. And then he uh, priest gets very little support from other Catholics and especially other priests, and he's kind of seen as an outcast. And right now in America, you know, we probably only have, you know, 100, 200 uh, exorcists that have any kind of training. Every time I go to conference, they say we're losing about a, one exorcist a year, and it's not from death. It's from, mm. it's from uh, burnout, and sometimes they just, they just leave their priesthood altogether. So, um, you know, cases of exorcists being seduced by women possessed by demons, just using that those natural ways of breaking down and wearing down the exorcist until, until he leaves. One, one exorcist thought he, he hears about two, two guys leaving a year. It's very dangerous for the exorcist if he's doing it all by himself. You can't be a lone wolf. You have to, you especially have to have uh, the backing of, of the bishop, but you need good prayer group. You need good prayer life. You need to be plugged in with your brother priests and hopefully have support there um, because it can be a very, very lonely uh, ministry and overwhelming ministry without, without a good team at your side. Father, this, this Easter season, we've been talking about like the physical case for Catholicism and how much Catholicism is true and apparent in the, in the physical world. And one way that we mm-hmm. see kind of this demonic interaction is with the Black Mass. So listeners right. may be aware of like the, the Harvard Extension Cultural Studies Club and their Black Mass back in 2014. But there's like been recent mm-hmm. ones, so the 2016 one down in Oklahoma City. Can you kind of explain what the Black Mass is? Why, why it's important that the devil mocks the Eucharist um, and that there's a significance there that Catholic masses are the things that are being mocked by the devil. Yeah. So the, the devil can't uh, create, so he has to take things that already exist. And strangely enough, he wants things with grace um, because he wants to perver- pervert it, and he wants it to no longer be a source of grace. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, my, my mother and her husband, um, they would— when we were going around to these missions, they would take holy water from the missions, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they would use that in their rituals. And I was thinking to myself, well, this is weird. And then they would get wine from a monastery sold by monks because they knew that somewhere along the way, the process, the wine was blessed. Either, you know, their machines or, or their, you know, their ministry was, was blessed. So they want to take that thing that it has grace in it and then tr- transform, desecrate that thing into its its opposite version because that's what happened with the the devil the devil was meant to be good but he fell and now he uses all of his virtues as vices mm-hmm. all of his strength to to hurt people instead of help people and many of the demons they belong to the opposite vice now of the virtue that they were trying to to establish so maybe they were a virtue of an angel of chastity for young couples or young single people and now they are a demon of lust for, for young young people. Um, same way, Satanists and, and witches they're they're not going to come up with, you know, a dark uh, Bible study or a dark altar call or anything like that. <laughs> they're going to go to those things, especially the Catholic things that have grace, and they're going to try to imitate that or mock it or desecrate in some way. So, I know a little bit more about the Oklahoma City group because I know the exodus from that area, and that one there was some video of it. Unfortunately, I don't. 
I don't tell people to watch it. It's mostly just, it mostly was just taking all the Catholic things you'd see at mass and just inverting it mm. so that it was, I think at one point they used a holy water sprinkler, but not a holy water sprinkler. It was, it was a phallic uh, sex toy that they had water on and they were, they were using that to spread the, the water, which was cursed water mm. on people. So they want to take everything and just make a mockery of it and, and make it the opposite of what it's intended for. And then later they had the desecration of Mary where, where they had a Marian statue and poured all kinds of different, uh, you know, grotesque things on, upon it, trying to make it unholy. There's kind of philosophical Satanists and then there's real Satanists. I think this might be the more philosophical Satanists to say there is no God, there is no devil. We're going to do this just to show you that, look, we're not being struck dead by doing this. Mm-hmm. So they do it. But the thing is, the devil doesn't care. You know, a lot of times we think, oh, the devil's so prideful. He needs the credit. He's only going to show up when you call upon the right name. You know, you can't call upon Mother Earth and get and get the devil. Mm-hmm. He doesn't He doesn't want the credit. He's more crafty than that. He doesn't care about the credit. He only cares about the, the chaos. He doesn't care if his name is invoked, just as long as some other name besides God's name is invoked. Mm-hmm. And so he gets rights to that room at that conference center. So I know the priest, um, next day there was some somebody that they knew on staff that allowed them to get in there. What is called a chapter three, which is a minor exorcism over a place, was performed in that, in that spot to try to shut down any right that the devil had to harass people that ever, you know, rented that room or anything in the future. So, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the guy, when he did it, he was wearing a bishop's cassock, and, and they were all wearing kind of uh, cassocks and acolyte clothes, but trying to make it look grotesque in some way. So there's always this fascination. It's kind of like Herod listening to St. John the Baptist. There's a part of them that are attracted to the things that they should have been doing, mm-hmm. but they want to do what they, the demons want to do what they should have been doing as angels, but they can't anymore. It's too painful. Mm-hmm. So then they invert it into the opposite vice that they were supposed to be doing in heaven for us. It's almost like being mad at your ex. You've got that love yeah, that yeah. was there or that relationship that was there, and it becomes something hateful and corrupted. We had Exodus this last time. He gave me a great insight into to the uh, scriptures. I'm trying to remember. But right after Transfiguration, one of the Gospels, there's an, they come down from the mountain, and there's an exorcism going on, and, and the apostles can't do it. Um, you know, I was taught, and I don't know about you, Joe, what you were taught, but we were taught kind of this historic critical method. Who put some editor put those two things together and it doesn't really make much sense. You know, I would have done it differently if I was writing the gospel, but this actually said, no, this is exactly what happened. When something great, when God does something great, like a transfiguration reveals his son and said, this is my son. Listen to him. Now he shows a father with possessed boy. And he says, this is, he tries to make a mockery of the idea of the heavenly father and the son and says, here's a father that's helpless to help you. I control this kid. This father can do nothing, just like your father can do nothing when I attack you later. And it's always, and you see that with when the Holy Spirit um, descends upon Jesus at the baptism, then he's flung into the desert to encounter uh, the devil. There's this holy thing going on. The devil immediately wants to undo it in the opposite direction. And, you know, in the gospel, in Luke... Right after, you know, it says the Spirit drove him out into the desert. And what did we hear at the baptism? Mm -hmm. The Father saying, this is my beloved Son. Mm -hmm. And then the first temptation in the desert. If you are the Son of God, Mm -hmm. turn these stones into bread. Like, it's not about hunger. It's about attacking that relationship with sonship. Yeah, Uh, And, you know, you you talked about the transfiguration. 
uh, Raphael has an incredible mosaic that's in St. Peter's. And it's the top half is the transfiguration and the bottom half is the exorcism that you're describing. Mm. And it's these yep, two scenes, yep. one after another from Mark 9. And it's striking. I never heard the uh, the connection you just made. Yeah. But mm-hmm. what's cool about the way Raphael does the mosaic is that the, the apostles aren't able to drive out this demon. And right. if you look at that scene, the bottom half, you see the apostles, you see all this chaos, and there's just like a hole in the middle of the scene. Well, directly mm-hmm. above that, on the other half of the mosaic, is Jesus in glory, it being mm-hmm. transfigured. And so it's like, what yeah. was missing from this? Right. Prayer and fasting. Turning to Jesus. Mm-hmm. They were trying to do this amazing thing kind of on their own. Mm-hmm. And, and exactly. they weren't able to. It makes sense. Like, we've been talking a lot about the incarnation in the series. We talk a lot about how Christ takes on flesh. Really fascinating to see, like, how in exorcisms or in, in the demonic, like, there's just an inversion. Like, even, you know, Christ comes right. and takes on flesh, and here the devil is trying to mock that with possession or mock the mass or mock the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. And Sometimes a demon can actually appear as a human being and, so, and usually as tries to appear as a loved one to try to trick people. The demon cannot quite take on the full human form, and we're not quite sure why, whether they just hate the full human form so much mm. or they're not allowed to. But there always be something wrong, like you can't see their legs or their eyes are missing or you can only see half their face or some kind of weird thing where they got some kind of protrusion on their head, like horns, or they got feet that are hidden because they're, you know, they're clothed or something. So we're not quite sure why, but they hate God so much and God loves us. So the only way they can attack God is by destroying the thing they love. I mean, it's, it's something real in the in our own physical world, you know, mafia boss. You can't get to the mafia boss while you go after his loved ones trying to draw out the response that you you want from the mafia boss they can't attack god so they go after his loved ones mm-hmm. and ultimately what the devil would love god to do is destroy him get him so enraged that um that he destroys something that he created mm-hmm. that he loved and his greatest the greatest test was there at the at the cross will you will you stop me from destroying your son but you have to you have to break your one rule, which is you'll never destroy anything you created, mm-hmm. to destroy me in the process. And in a way, even if he was destroyed, he would he would win. But that great line from Jesus on the cross was, "Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing." That was to us and to the devil. The devil did know what he was doing when he refused to serve God's plan, and for that reason, he will never be forgiven. The demons will sometimes pretend that they're redeemable. They'll ask for help or something of that nature. It's all a trick. They cannot be redeemed. They don't want to be redeemed. They would never choose to be redeemed. They're stuck because they also would like to be destroyed, but God can't destroy anything that he's ever created. Well, there is like a tangible takeaway for today's episode for listeners. We've talked about demonic possession. We've talked about the reality of the devil. What do we have kind of in our tool belt when it comes to like spiritual warfare? Like what do we have? Uh, to fight the devil when it comes to interacting with him in today's world. We got so much, especially as Catholics, you know, often say about Protestants is that they do a lot more with a lot less. I mean, they have scripture, incomplete scripture, but they have scripture. They have Ten Commandments that are sometimes mm-hmm. missing commandment or two, but they are able to do a lot more with a lot less. We got so much more. We got we got the full scriptures. We got the church fathers. We got mm-hmm. the councils. We got the Pope. And, you know, Pope Francis has been saying wonderful things about how how we need to always, we're always in this battle against evil, not ordinary temptations and extraordinary temptations. And mostly we got the angels and the saints, which we don't, we don't realize. We think from the book of Revelation, it says, you know, the, the dragon caused one third of the stars in the sky to fall, that that was a metaphor for how 
one, how countless the stars are. That's how countless the number of angels are. And then a third, only a third of them fell. So that means double the amount is working on our side to fight them off at, at every moment. And they're just waiting for us to ask them. You know, so knowing the guardian angel prayer, knowing the St. Michael prayer, uh, knowing the, the saints to call upon, you know, even just calling upon Mary or calling upon St. Joseph, who's known as the terror of demons because of his humility, um, all and his, and his job is protecting the Holy Family, which we belong to a Holy Family. And all of those, all of those great uh, access we have to, to not our own power, but to God's power that he's given us through the sacraments and through the saints and through the angels. Father, thank you so much for coming on. Mm-hmm. Now, we normally close in prayer with the glory be, but since you're a priest, we're wondering if you could close by giving us a blessing. Sure, and we'll uh, we'll invoke some of the uh, angels as well. Mm-hmm. So why don't we close in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Mm-hmm. Let's call upon our guardian angel as we pray. Angel God, my, my guardian dear, dear, whose God's love commits thee here, ever this day be at my side, to light and guard, to rule and guide, amen. And may Almighty God bless you and protect you from all attacks of the enemy, both physical and spiritual. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen.